The marketing around distributed systems products can sometimes fill us with unreasonable amounts of confidence. Distributed systems products are often marketed with terms like real-time data and hassle-free scaling. But what do these terms actually mean? Is data in a distributed system ever reliably real-time? Do we ever have strong enough plans about our scalability strategy to say that scaling will be hassle-free? Camille Fournier joins us to discuss distributed systems in practice today. Like everything else in computer science, distributed systems are all about trade-offs, and picking the right sets of trade-offs in our distributed systems will affect the entire organizations that we build. We also discuss the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which Camille is a part of, and the CNCF is similar to the Apache Foundation, but it's specifically for cloud technologies like containers and Kubernetes. The CNCF is likely to have a strong impact in the way that we build software for a long time to come. So I believe this is an important topic that we're going to continue to cover on Software Engineering Daily. Camille Fournier is a distributed systems engineer and speaker. Camille, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You gave a talk called Hopelessness and Confidence in Distributed Systems Design, and you started off by talking about the marketing terms of various distributed systems and databases, and you included terms like real-time analytics, real-time data, hassle-free scaling, and these are marketing terms that uh, certain vendors will say about their distributed systems. What do these marketing terms say about the average software developer's understanding of distributed systems? Well, so I think that what they, I mean, what they say about the average software developer, I'm not sure I can speak about the average software developer. I think that if you believe these marketing terms too much, you can get into trouble. Um, You know, marketing marketers want to sell you something, right? It's the same with uh, beauty products or, you know, clothing or whatever, right? They're, they're trying to sell you this promise that the product that they have to offer you will make your life better, will make your life easier, will solve the problems that you have. And so when you're trying to sell software to engineers in particular, right, you're trying to sell to them the, the idea that They don't have to think about scaling, for example, that as long as you use my database or my distributed system, (laughs) uh, just install it and you're good to go. And you don't really have to think about scaling, at least not that part of your system. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I brought that up because, as we all know, that's not it's not super realistic. Right. It is. It's marketing like it can help. A lot of these systems can do a lot of great things for you. But if you go into them expecting them to solve all of your problems, you're going to be disappointed. Right. And you say that these marketing terms embody the idea of hope. Maybe they're kind of uh, tapping into the hope that developers have that some kind of out of the box solution will solve the hard problems around distributed architectures. To what extent is that actually true that what to what extent can these packaged products solve our problems out of the box? You know, it's interesting. I think that they're getting better and better. Um, so when I first started working in distributed systems 10 years ago, more than that at this point, 
it was everything was almost you had to do it all yourself. You had to build it all yourself. You had to, you know, think about everything from the network to the hardware to the system design. It was mostly an academic area. Obviously, there were some big companies that had done some big work like Google. But, you know, even Google back then was still kind of early days and really thinking about what it meant to build all of these different types of distributed systems, distributed storage systems with the performance requirements that people wanted to be building against. Um, I do think that things are getting better and better. In particular, if you look at some of the cloud offerings that companies like Amazon are offering or Google in their cloud, right? They've got these distributed storage systems where they are certainly not perfect. And they certainly have many different ways that they can fail. But it's becoming realistic to, it actually, you know, I would say in, even in the time that I, since I wrote that talk and delivered that talk, it's becoming more and more that if you're doing a fairly straightforward problem. And, you know, let's say you're building an e-commerce website, right? You can probably use relatively out-of-the-box components in something like an Amazon and get a lot of the scaling that you need. You are still going to have failures. So the thing, the thing is that, you know, no product is going to work magically on its own without you having to think about it and having to think about the guarantees that your system needs, the guarantees that your company needs. Um, so, you know, that's the sort of like, that's the trade-off, right? Is if you just hope that if you throw this, you know, DynamoDB or, you know, whatever, Amazon uh, RDS or whatever, right, out there, it's just going to be magical. Amazon will take care of it for you. You're not going to have any problems. That's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have to think, you still have to understand the trade-offs that you're making as you scale and tweak this system. Um, but it is getting, it is actually getting better now it's getting easier. Some of these problems are becoming abstractable as long as you're not pushing the boundaries of scale too far. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to talk about those distributed systems trade-offs that we do need to focus on. Um, you say that trade-offs are what we need to fully embrace to grapple with distributed systems. What are the attributes of our distributed systems that are being traded off on a regular basis? Sure. So... I believe that when I gave this talk, I sort of talked about the trade-off between scalability and failure tolerance, right? In that you you kind of need them both, and each of them makes the other one harder. Um, so you know, it's it's very it's a very sort of basic thing to think about when you really just dig in for a minute, right? As you scale, you have more moving parts, you have more systems, you have more more physical hardware, more networking components, more potentially software in the mix, right? More little places that can fail. Uh, On the other hand, if you need failure tolerance, you have to scale. You have to, you know, you, you have to have multiple things running or else one thing fails and that's all you had and, and you're, and you're done. So, you know, scaling makes, scaling, makes it more likely that you're going to have something that can fail. Hmm. Um, And so failure tolerance often means that you just deploy redundancy throughout your system so that if one thing fails, it's not that big a deal. But then that makes scaling even more expensive, right? So now instead of just, you know, releasing two things and having twice as much capacity, actually you've released two things, but you only have like one and a half times as much capacity because of the way the redundancy needs to work to let you scale, for example. 
So, so this axis of trade-off with scalability and failure tolerance, um, you, you say scaling makes failure tolerance harder and failure tolerance makes scaling harder. My impression is that once you get to a certain point, you get these certain economies of scale and failure, to- failure tolerance actually can get easier even as you scale. So in that sense, like going going from one server to 10 servers might be really hard, but going from 1,000 servers to 10,000 servers might be easier because at that point you've you've standardized your protocol for failure tolerance. Is that accurate? I'm not sure that that is accurate. Um, <laughs> I, you know, here's the thing. I think it's accurate to a, um, oh, how do I want to say this? To like a, to like a degree of tolerance, right? You certainly have to learn a lot about failure tolerance to go from one to 10, but you have to learn about a whole different kind of failure tolerance to go from 10 to 10,000, right? I, you know, when you look at, again, companies like Google or Facebook or Twitter, companies that have really massive uh, production hardware outlays, those companies are going to basically constantly be experiencing certain kinds of failure. And so they are going to have learned about really every kind of obscure failure that could possibly hit you. Right? If you have 10 servers, it's more likely that you know a disk is going to fail here, a network's going to fail there. When you have like 10,000 servers, something's always failing all the time. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that's a very different type of production environment to be running and to be writing code for and to be thinking about than what most of us think of, even when we're writing you know, distributed systems of the you know, 10 to 50 scale, right? Mm. And there are just, there are just certain kinds of failures that it may not be worth it for you to try to engineer around if you can, you know, if you're going to have people manually watching all of those servers, for example, right? What you could do if you had 10 of them, you could not reasonably do that if you've got 10,000 of them. So I do think that you make scaling, scaling does get easier in some ways the more you do it, right? You, you hit certain inflection points where like, yes, going from one to 10 is really hard. If you've got a system that's very stateful, that's very much built for, you know, built, built as like it's expecting to be a single system and always run in the same place. And then once, you know, once you uh, question that assumption, you really do have to change a lot. And that gets you to a massive ability to scale. But that doesn't get you to the ability to go Google scale, right? Going Google scale implies a level of operational awareness that I think most of us are still not really super, like, super ready for. Well, then it becomes more about maybe scaling your armies of uh, site reliability engineers, and it's more of like a management scalability question? Uh, Maybe. I think it's also just a... Yeah, I, you know, I think it's also like there's questions of scaling across data centers, for example, right? It's just a whole new world when you have to think of what happens when a whole data center goes down and mm-hmm. you really have to think about that versus yeah. like, oh, we kind of thought about that. And right. you know, we won't lose everything if that happens, but we're going to suffer an outage versus like, nope, you really don't. That's really not an option. Mm-hmm. Right. And I do think that that even that is a different kind of scaling than simply being able to run across multiple machines. Mm-hmm. So we've done several shows on different types of distributed systems trade offs. And the ones that we usually talk about on Software Engineering Daily 
are like consistency, availability, partition tolerance, maybe latency. These are you know kind of the academic, uh, traditional uh, ways of trading off that we think about in distributed systems. But you you talk about some more abstract distributed systems trade offs. I think are pretty interesting. What are the other axes that you think are are interesting to discuss in terms of trade-offs? Sure. So, I mean, I think that the human axes are very interesting to discuss uh, in trade-offs. And those include everything from the more technical human axes, such as things like rewriting all of your code or being able to modify it in place. Um, you know, thinking about, are you going to build a completely new system or are you going to try to take the system you have and make it scalable in the way that you need to make it? I think, you know, that's a very interesting architectural trade-off that a lot of engineers, especially engineers who are sort of early in their career, may not have thought about that much. Yeah, um, for, the, for the sake of those engineers, can you distinguish between a rewrite and an, an in-place modification? Absolutely. Um, so a rewrite, I mean, I think a rewrite you probably, everyone is familiar with. You have a working code base that does something. And instead of taking that code base and, you know, tweaking it here and there, you say, we're not, we're just going to leave this code base running as is, serving its customers, doing whatever it does. And we're going to go over here and we're going to write something new from the ground up. We're going to re-implement its core functionality, but maybe in a scalable way, in a distributed way against different kinds of systems and different languages, whatever. Um, so that would be a rewrite. Uh, a modification is looking at that existing code base and saying, we are not going to move into a different code base. We're not even going to like open up a new Git repo, right? We're going to stay in this repo potentially. Or maybe you open up a new Git repo and you copy all the code in there. It's a branch, right? <laughs> um, but we're going to stay in this code base. We're going to stay in this language. And we're going to change parts of the functionality of it such that it does the new things we need it to do. It scales in the new way that we need it to scale without having to rewrite all of its logic, right? The logic still exists and we're not going to actually change that logic fundamentally. We're going to leave that alone, but we're going to make this system do new things. And, you know, that is a tricky piece of surgery to do. It, if you have a code base where you can do that, though, it's incredibly... Uh, it's an incredibly fruitful thing to do because rewriting completely from scratch often fails because it's really hard to know all of the super nitty-gritty details of business logic that are in like existing long-lived systems. Mm -hmm. So if you can make a system scale without having to completely rewrite it soup to nuts, that is just like... It's that's a that's a wonderful thing, and it's actually a, tends to be a sign of a pretty good code base when you can do that. Yeah, you know, the solution that I see to this kind of question is oftentimes you write an additional layer of uh, functionality on top of the existing service that kind of uh, hems in the abilities of like you know you have some archaic. Uh, legacy service that does all these things that people aren't really sure of what it does, and then so they they just kind of write this extra layer of abstraction on top of it that that reduces the uh, functionality calls. Have you seen that pattern mm -hmm. fairly often? Yeah, yeah, that's a very common way of that's a very common way of doing it. Especially if you if you what you want to do is 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 a slow rewrite. Often, what you'll do is something like that where you're going to sort of pull out, pick pieces of the original system and 
pull those little pieces out and reroute to those pieces while you're still leaving the leaving the rest of the system. So you know mm -hmm. you so you write some kind of an abstraction that knows which pieces have been have been moved out and knows what whether to call the newer system or the older system. Um, as well as, yeah, you know, just writing a layer where it's like, well, we're just going to kind of treat this old system as a black box, but we're going to write a better API on top of it for, you know, so that we can do other things with it. Um, mm -hmm. those are both, those are both common patterns. I mean, you're, you're certainly going to have to, any kind of like rewrite where you're, or a modification where you're really changing the way something functions pretty fundamentally. So when I talked about this in that strange loop talk, I was talking about a system that I got to work on where we took a big, you know, standalone in-memory caching, you know, data, data analysis system and turned it into a distributed system in the code base, you know, without, you know, moving to a different code base without rewriting at all. And we did have to put in a lot of layers of abstraction in that. So we had to put in layers of abstraction in between, you know, the places where the, you know, the various uh, user functionality had actually called calculation logic, we would have to intercept that and call out to the distributed systems and, you know, distribute that calculation and bring it back together, right? And so you, we did have to insert um, places where we, where we kind of pulled, you know, what was tightly coupled-ish apart and distributed that logic in between. Um, so you are always, I think if you're going to do a rewrite like that, or a modification, I should say like that, you are going to be you are going to be inserting various abstractions into the code base. It just depends on whether you wrap the whole thing and you kind of treat it as a black box and you just wrap it in, in something and use it that way. Or if you actually try to go inside that black box and, and separate out the pieces of it, even if you don't necessarily touch all of the inner pieces, right? You, you, you sort of crack it open a little bit. Synchronization and performance is another one of your trade-off pairs. How do these two trade off synchronization versus performance? Yeah. So it's a, it's a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like CP versus AP for the, uh, for the uh, distributed systems nerds, right? You know, it, if you want things to operate in lockstep, to operate synchronously, that can be a lot easier to reason about. And it can be a lot easier to operate against. In the case of this system, it was doing a lot of mathematical comp computations that were sort of like a vector mathy. Um, and, you know, instead of saying, oh, we're going to let any node complete its operation whenever and we're going to just start sort of streaming results to the to the client who's looking at them, we are actually going to wait for all nodes to complete their computation synchronously. So those nodes are all computing in parallel, but we have to wait for all of them to complete before we can then combine the results and show them to the customer. And that meant that, you know, we, we were not necessarily showing results as quickly as possible, right? You're, you're limited by the slowest member of the group. It's less flexible. It's less failure tolerant. Um, but on the other hand, it was a simpler system for us to build. So we were willing to trade off that performance and to some extent that failure tolerance in order to be able to build something that was easier for us to reason about and frankly, you know, just easier for us to build. And that made sense given the business problem we were trying to solve here. Hmm. So I want to talk about maybe sort of a case study. Um, so one of your most recent jobs, I think this was was your most recent job, was 
you were working at Rent the Runway, Rent the Runway, <laughs> and you were building. Uh, well, you broke a monolith into microservices, and we mm-hmm. we've done several shows uh, on this mm-hmm. uh, topic. And many companies seem to progress this way, where they start as a monolith. And eventually, they break into they break the monolith into microservices, and this is kind of a typical pattern because it's often easier to start with a monolith. Um, what are the reasons that it's easier to start with a monolith, and what what is the inflection point where a team decides, or a team should decide that it, let's break up into microservices? Yeah. Um- so I, you know, I just generally think that monoliths are, unless you know from the get-go that you are really going to have certain pieces of logical bottlenecks that are going to be very hard to scale, um, or that are going to need like they're going to need to scale very differently from the rest of your system. the The value of a monolith is that you have all the logic together and you can change it all you know, in lockstep. Again, it's a little bit of the synchronization performance trade-off that we just talked about, right? Um, You know, in some sense, both your development team is acting kind of synchronously in that you're all working against the same code base. You're all working against the same, generally speaking, deployable artifact. Um, It's all right there. And when you don't know that your business is going to succeed or fail, if you're in an early stage startup, you know, you probably don't want to spend a ton of time worrying about scaling something that has no usership, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> right? You want to like figure out, you want to get to that product market fit, as they say, right? You want to figure out who's going to use this thing. Are they really going to be interested in this product that we're trying to build? And unless you really know that, wow, from just from the moment we launch, we are going to, this, this is very computationally intensive and we're going to have to be able to really scale this part of it. And so we should really run that separately. I mean, you know, maybe you're doing an AR or machine learning thing that you know has heavy computational requirements. Fine, right? Build that out, not in a monolithic format. But if you're building a consumer product, you know, a website, an app for people, and you don't really know yet if they're going to even adopt it, to try to build it out as a series of independent services requires a lot of thoughtful architecture for something that you don't actually really necessarily know where where the wins are going to be and where you're going to want to build out more and where you're actually going to want to scale more. So, you know, I think that in the early days with a small team, you can just develop a lot faster and iterate a lot more quickly in monolith systems. You know, maybe this is... uh... This is an incorrect prediction, but it, it seems like we're in this place right now where in software as you know if we work on a greenfield software project, we have to make this trade off we we have to make this maybe the false choice of monolith versus microservice uh it seems like there should be or there will be eventually maybe this is Kubernetes, but there will be some kind of one click sort of Ruby on Rails style, uh, you know, start from day one and get something that can scale into microservices um, rather than having to start with with a monolithic application. Um, does that te- seem too pie in the sky? Like, are we going to have some framework that will allow us to do this easily from day one? I think that, I mean, I really think that the challenge is not it, totally anyway, the deployment and operational elements, although 
I do think that you're you're right that the Kubernetes of the world, what have you, are probably going to continue to make that part of it easier and easier. And that's good because that is a really hard part of building any kind of a services architecture. But I do think that it's hard to... It's hard to think about the services themselves. Like, what are you actually breaking up? Do you really know the data model of your business well Mm. enough to think about it as services? So now, I guess I should be personally clear. A lot of people, I think, define services or microservices a little bit different than, than I do. I think of them a little bit more in the classic services model, meaning that my, the, the quote-unquote microservices that rent the runway weren't like super tiny. They weren't like two endpoints and that was it. They had sort of very clearly delineated ownership of an important part of the business model. Um, and they, you know, they were really used to isolate various independent pieces of the business model so that you you knew exactly who owned the writing and the and the data access for particular important you know elements it wasn't mm. like you know so like you we did not have multiple services writing to the same logical database table or, or, or object you would not have multiple services that were doing modifications of what was ultimately overlapping data mm. um, you would have one service that owned a piece of a particular type of data users or products or reservations right and then those services would you know expose certain endpoints and you would have other services that could join those endpoints together to create various combined business functionality that's a very classic services model um, from the old SOA days except that it's not you know I think the big difference between what people call microservices and old SOA is there's no SOAP, there's no, you know, you're probably using REST, right? It's probably faster build out of these, of these models. Um, so, you know, I think if the idea, I think if the idea is that you could build something like Kubernetes and then what you could really do is have each developer like literally responsible for an endpoint, I mean, fundamentally, you still have this problem of data. You still, the, uh, you know, underlying it all, you've got state because you've got a business and a business has state. A business is not a stateless thing. So you have to reflect state somewhere. And the tricky part of coordination, whether it's developers writing the same code or systems coordinating or whatever, is, you know, reflecting those changes in state and controlling access to those changes in state uh, in a way that makes sense for the business, for the business purpose, for the customers, for whomever. Hmm. Well, I mean, my presentation of microservices might have been kind of a, a red herring, uh, at least relative to how you see things, because you've, you've also said that microservices is maybe more effective as a way to scale teams rather than scaling software, or at least as effective to scaling teams as it is to scaling software. Um, and... And so you you might be partitioning your services in reality. You know, obviously we would love to partition them finally by API and have these beautiful endpoints. But it may make more sense in in actuality to partition our services by teams. So could uh, tell me if I'm if I'm right about this? Like, is am I interpreting you correctly that you think that my, that the microservices are more about defining your team effectively? Um, I think that. I do think that that is part of it, yes. Um, I think that they they are about... So 
you know, microservices are effective if you have enough developers where you can have a group of developers that owns a service or a set of services and that really has the ability to build out the features that they need to build out and do the things they need to build out within the services that they own without really requiring a bunch of changes to other services that they don't own. Uh, I think that can be really effective because, you know, now you've changed the, the sort of dependency of scheduling that is very complicated in a large team, right? So it's very complicated when you've got everybody working against the same monolithic code base to schedule out different releases. And there are certainly companies that manage that, right? Etsy is sort of famously on the big monolith code base, even though even they have parts of their system that are totally in services world, right, that are run that way. Um, but, you know, it, there is something nice about being able to give a team as much control as possible over all of the elements of the system that they might need to change to build out whatever features they're trying to build out. And I do think that microservices can be very helpful for that if you view it as teams. If you try to view it as individuals, which I think sometimes people go really extreme and they say, oh, you know, each developer owns a service or multiple services even, right? And, you know, those services are really very small and, you know, developer, an individual developer can sort of work as an island and do whatever they need. I think that is a very risky thing to rely on because what tends to happen is you now you have a lot of single points of failure in your humans, right? And if one of those humans leaves and they were the only person that really understood the services that they were writing, nobody else was even in that code base ever. Maybe they did code reviews, but that's really not the same thing as being a person who's kind of actively working together with other people in the same code base. That can be very risky. It's you know I I think that's a I think a lot of people buy into that false promise that some people have said oh microservices can really let you scale your humans very very independently and realistically there's going to be some coordination and if you try to scale your humans too thin then you end up with failure tolerance problems because your humans quit. <laughs> mm. How do you build an organization that can be resilient to that, where if somebody quits, the knowledge can effectively get shared to whoever the replacement is? Yeah. Um, So I think there's a few things that smart organizations do. The first of which is that they don't go nuts on having a totally heterogeneous set of technologies that they're reliant on. So, you know, I am a fan of standardizing as much as possible where it makes sense. Um, a lot of people, I think, believe that the perfect tool for the job is, is the ultimate argument for technical things. And in reality, you know, it's, it's, never ju- it's very rarely just technical. You have a whole team. You have a lot of people, right? So I'm a big fan of standardizing on languages and frameworks as much as possible, as well as on data stores and caches. So instead of, you know, each team picking its own language, its own frameworks, its own data stores, caches, whatever, and every team kind of just doing whatever they feel comfortable with, they feel is best. Um, generally speaking, I think it's a good idea to standardize um, and make exceptions, but only when there's a really good case for it. You know, ask people to make a strong case for we are normally 
a Java shop, but we really should use Go for this problem, for example, right? You know, mm. okay, maybe there's, I can imagine that there is a, that there's a case when that makes sense or, or, you know, we're, all, we're normally a Ruby shop, but we really should use Erlang for this, right? Okay. Like I, it's not that I don't think that there are times when you need to break these rules, but I think that people often just say, well, you know, like there are, there are going to be times when we'll need to break these rules. So let's just not bother with them in the first place and let the developers make their own decisions. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and it's not that I think anyone is malicious or, you know, not doing the the best job that they think they can do. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, standardization means that everybody at least knows most of the frameworks that are in production. They know the language pretty well. They are capable of debugging and pitching in when things go wrong with other people's systems. And you limit the points of failure. Well, because what happens in practice, if, I, I really like your, your pragmatism around the language standardization, because what happens in practice is new developer joins the company, finds out that several developers have left recently and what they were working on was this random service in Scala or this thing in ClojureScript. And, you know, as a new developer, you have no idea how these languages work. So you simultaneously have to onboard with the language while you're onboarding with the company and the company's, you know, uh, domain-specific problems. And uh, and it's just kind of a disaster. And then you find out, oh, the only reason these were written in Scala and ClojureScript is because these were... Uh, novelty-seeking engineers and yeah. <laughs> uh, novelty-driven development is is not the you know the best uh, way to increase your bus factor. No. Um, no. <laughs> um, so fast releases. Um, I mean, you say that this is really important to to a successful engineering organization releasing frequently, and it's mm-hmm. easy to pay lip service to this idea. But what does this mean in practice? What are the technologies and strategies and methodologies that need to be in place to release frequently? Yeah. So I think, you know, very pragmatically, things that people often overlook, you need to have developers who understand how to break their code down into releasable, frequently releasable chunks of work. Um, So I would say that one thing, one, one common error that I think a lot of developers have, especially when it, especially because Git kind of encourages this, is this idea that you go away and you work on a branch for a long time and you build up a big change <laughs> and, you know, you get code review on the change or whatever, but then your, your big, beautiful, perfect change is released. Mm-hmm. And that is a really good way to break everything all the time. <laughs> Even for great developers, right? That kind of software development style makes sense for certain kinds of open source development. Uh, It does not, generally speaking, make sense for internal and company development, company application development, right? If you are working for an organization that is developing, especially if you're deploying code for consumers or other businesses, right, you should probably be thinking and understanding how to really break down your big tickets, your big items into small chunks that you can push into the master branch head, whatever they call it and get, <laughs> I always forget, uh, frequently, right? And that can actually see the light of production frequently. Um, and I think that like that plus feature flags, which are necessary for certain kinds of changes to be able to be made that way, right? So you have a feature flag that 
means that you're writing code that's actually going into production, but it's never being executed because it's behind a flag that's saying, actually, this is not on yet, right? This should not Mm -hmm. be executed in production because it's not ready yet. Um, Those two practices are, are really critical to being able to successfully release code frequently. If you don't have those two practices happening, then you're kind of, you're, you're really putting yourself into this position where you've got really big changes and no easy way of turning them on or off. So you've got a really big change. You're going to rely on human code review, maybe plus QA of some sort, automated testing of some sort to detect if there are any problems. And then you just push it out there to the world and lo and behold, things are going to go wrong, right? Or, you know, you're going to have merge conflicts. That's the worst, right? What a, what a waste of time to deal with nasty merge conflicts <laughs> because, you know, you've been working on a branch for a long time mm-hmm. and, you know, you haven't been running tests on that branch. And actually, if you had been running tests on the branch, you would notice that you had broken everything or whatever, right? Like that, that so those are kind of some of the basics. Then you get to the more, the things that people actually think are cool and interesting, like, you know, easy scripting and automation around the deployment process and the rollback process and monitoring, really good monitoring of systems so that you can detect failures, um, you know, build trains and deploy trains and things like that. But honestly, like if you're, if your team is not used to developing code in small chunks and pushing that code into the main, you know, releasable branch frequently behind flags. So if necessary, so that it won't be exercised in production, then that's ground zero. You've got to start there. Cause if you can't do that, you're never going to, you're never going to get to any kind of continuous deployment or even daily deployment. It's going to be really hard. Yeah. I've, I've uh, seen these types of places where they don't have things like, um, you know, a lot of, m- monitoring and good monitoring tools and good monitoring hooks and they don't have the right testing and they don't have a really standardized uh deployment pipeline uh and 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 once an organization has like been built up without those things in place it can almost take like a herculean effort to reinstitute those types of things mm-hmm. is it, I mean, do you have any uh, I don't. I don't know if you've ever been in, in an organization like that, or if you've uh, seen. Oh any yes. Of your oh, oh I've, I've I've seen it all. No, I mean at Rent the Runway when I joined, um, you know, when I joined Rent the Runway, it was a monolith in Drupal of all things. Um, they, I guess they had just started sort of thinking about using Java services, and they maybe they had one that had been written by a contractor, and they were working on another one. But it was a big Drupal monolith, and. If they released more than twice a quarter, I think it was good, right? It was it was really not a frequently releasing product. So how did you fix it? I mean, you know, a lot of effort. Um, I like to say that one of the one of the best things I ever did. I think I might have even. I think uh, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but basically, I sort of I challenged the team. They were everyone was really complaining a lot about this, and so. You know, of course, as you mentioned earlier, we went through the process of moving off of this monolith into a services architecture. And so we did a lot of rewriting and the services were always built to be deployed frequently because it was just, you know, it was fresh code. It was easier. We built them with good testing in mind, you know, with flagging and all of that. stuff. So those are actually those were not a big deal. But we still had this big, 
you know, the front end part of the code base, you're talking about a fashion website. There is a ton of CSS and JavaScript and Ruby glue code that makes that website beautiful, makes it go, makes all the features work, right? It's not just all Java logic on the back end. And that was the place where we really needed to say, okay, how can we make this thing deployable? And it took it took a team. Uh, I forget what we called that team now. Oh, I can't remember. I can't believe I'm just forgetting this off right now. It had a very funny name. Um, but this was this cross-functional team of developers from, you know, from our sort of operations DevOpsy area, um, as well as a bunch of like front-end developers who were really passionate about building out flagging for the for the front end, building out deployment tools so that they could deploy a lot more easily, and then teaching each other how to write code such that it could be deployed frequently. Um, and it was amazing. This team, you know, this team kind of got together. It took them, a, it took them some, some work. It was like a couple months of work. And towards the end, I think the goal was just to speed up the development process and the deployment process. And towards the end, I said, hey, guys, like, you know, here's the deal. I want you to make it so that we can deploy every day. And I realize that for some of you, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But we were at that time, if we were lucky, doing weekly deployments. And they were painful and they took hours and, you know, they had to be rolled back really frequently. And I was like, I want to make this easy enough that deploying at least every day is not a big deal. And I sort of threw this at them kind of at the 11th hour, right? They, they had done a bunch of work. And I said, just push it all the way through. Let's see where we can go. And, you know, I think it was just kind of like the right, the right inspiration to really push them all the way through the thought process, all the way through mm. the process of not just building out flagging, but building out really, you know, flagging that everybody could understand how to use, building out a deployment process that everyone felt comfortable with, you know, working with a QA team to make sure that they felt good about the kinds of automated testing that we would be running against all of this, working it through with our product team so they understood the way deployments would now be happening. Um, But it was, you know, it takes time. It's not as much of a Herculean effort as you might think. I mean, you've got to stop and do it. But the Mm -hmm. impact on the productivity of the team was so amazing. After this was done, the team was just insanely more productive. They were happier. You know, it's just like engineers love to ship. That's the thing that I learned in my time as a CTO. Mm -hmm. And I think that I didn't really internalize before that. Is that engineers, I believe, really, at the end of the day, most of them love to ship code. They love to see their code go into production and be used by customers or whatever, right? Be running. Mm -hmm. And anything you can do to make it easier for them to do that will just make them happier and more productive. Yeah, very interesting. It's, it seems like uh, it's so important. Like maybe the, the the diff between feeling like it's a Herculean effort and actually getting it uh, going is if you see the end-to-end vision, like if, you, if you're standing there in front of the Drupal monolith and you can see the end vision of uh, a beautiful release process, then it doesn't seem as Herculean because at that point you could just break it into smaller steps and figure out how to do it. Yeah. Um, it becomes an inevitability rather than a Herculean effort. Um, so I want to talk some about the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which you joined this year. We had Joseph Jacks on the show recently, and we discussed the CNCF a bit. Um, why did you join the CNCF? Why do you feel this is important? I guess maybe we should we should just fill the listeners in on what the CNCF is. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the CNCF is really, it's an interesting thing for me to be a part of. Um, 
CNCF is a, you know, is an effort under the Linux Foundation to bring a group of companies together. And I think, you know, one of our goals is to create something that's a little bit like the Apache Foundation for projects that are very cloud native is kind of their, you know, their, their purpose, right? So Kubernetes is an incubator with the CNCF right now. Um, and they're, you know, they're sort of our first big project. But what we want to do is we want to provide a place where when you are looking and evaluating uh, especially sort of foundational systems, uh, open source systems with which to, on which to run your code and you are interested in building out your architecture in a cloud native way, meaning you're planning on, you know, always this is going to be deployed in the cloud. It's going to be very scalable. You know, you're going to not try, trying not to worry too much about physical hardware yourself, but building on these abstractions that are promised by this cloud native world that you can if something is a member of the cloud native compute foundation, you at least feel good that it is, you know, it is code that has owners that has a place, right. That is probably going to have support that there are people who are using and it has been technically vetted to some extent by a group of people who really know what they're, what they're doing. Um, I think that's a lot of the purpose of the cloud, of the uh, cloud native compute foundation in my mind. Um, I joined I joined because I thought it would be interesting and because I suspected, and this seems to be proving to be a little bit true, you know, I'm a little bit of an outsider in that world, right? I don't work for Google or Docker or Joyent or any of the big companies who are really pushing a cloud-native perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do have a lot of experience, obviously, with distributed systems and both, you know, sort of as the kind of person who would be a client of cloud native projects, but also a person who might be contributing to developing those foundational pieces. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a member partly because I, you know, partly because I think that it's good to have somebody in a group who is a little bit, you know, who's, who's willing to ask questions and doesn't really have any political, you know, I have no political stake in this in any way, right? My, I'm not working for a company who's going to make a bunch of money or lose a bunch of money, depending on what software people choose. (laughs) Just to give people an impression of how complex some of these governance and politics issues are, or or at least can be. I mean, I'm I'm reporting on this stuff all the time, and I've done all these shows on uh, on uh, Kubernetes and Mesos and uh, ECS and uh, the HashiCorp scheduler, and I don't. I can't understand how these things are different and how they're supposed to fit in and then OpenStack and then like, and then it's, it's really, really hard to know what is legitimate engineering discussion and what is optics that are set up by a company because they have an interest. And I can imagine you would fit in perfectly because you don't have that sense of, you know, that sense of uh, interest in, in, vending a product. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's, you know, I certainly, when I look at my role in that group, I see my role at least partly as, you know, I uh, calling bullshit a little bit, <laughs> telling, <laughs> telling the emperor that, you know, he's not, he's not wearing any clothes. Um, oh my. You know, it just, uh, those, that kind of like, you know, there are a lot of competing 
there are a lot of competing efforts and there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's definitely a little bit of politics going on. And my interest personally is just to help people who are, you know, not experts in all these systems, as you said, and there's so many of them and it's hard to figure out what's going on. Just help them feel like they've got good places to go to make, you know, reasoned and informed choices of software that's going to be supported. I think Apache did an amazing job with this, um, you know, the Apache Foundation, I think, you know, you trust it when you see something as an Apache Foundation product, mm-hmm. you trust that that's going to mean something, right? That, that's a little bit of like a seal of approval to some extent. It doesn't mean the product is perfect or great or, you know, but it's, there's a level of seal, seal of approval that it got through and now it has some support and some governance. And I think, you know, we are really interested in being a little bit more lightweight than I think the Apache Foundation can sometimes be for its projects. But at the end of the day, I do want to make sure that what we're providing is good guidance for people who are looking for open source software related to this area, as well as support for that open source software to help them, you know, find projects that are going to be, you know, they're going to be supported and they're going to do what they need them to do. Hmm. So when I think about the conflicts that have arisen within Apache, or not, maybe not conflicts, but product overlap in the Apache Software Foundation, uh, one thing that stands out as an iconic story is perhaps like Apache Kafka versus, you know, XMQ, like RabbitMQ or Mm -hmm. ZeroMQ. um, And Kafka kind of, I don't want to say won, but it, it, it... it kind of did win, I, mm-hmm. I think. Or I'm not sure if the other MQs were actually in the Apache Software Foundation, but... One of them was. Okay. Uh, I can't remember which one now. One of the uh. AMQP implementations. Right. Well, but so anyway, like Kafka was kind of the... It seemed like it just did the job the best. Um, do you think... I mean, but but perhaps in, you know, with the, cl- the CNCF technology stuff... Uh, the different schedulers, maybe these things are are too complex and too hard to weigh the the trade-offs against one another that you kind of just have to see how things play out in actuality or uh, I mean good. what is what's yeah. what's the idea I mean what's the ethos behind being more lightweight because I can imagine that would be the ethos is you just yeah. want to see how these things actually play out because who who knows if it's Kubernetes on Mesos <laughs> or Mesos on Kubernetes or Kubernetes on Kubernetes or I know, but <laughs> it is really, it is really mind bending. I, yeah, I think that the, the, the idea is that, so, so I will say this, right? Apache came about before the era of GitHub and GitHub has really changed the way open source works for better and for worse. I think, you know, I think for better and that there's just so much more of it. It's so easy to throw source code out there to the world and have people able to find it and use it and change it and modify it and do whatever you want with it, right? Um, And before GitHub, there were things, but it was nothing like GitHub. Um, And I think in the post-GitHub world, people are therefore a lot less inclined to give in to bureaucracy to get their open source product out there because they don't Mm -hmm. need to. They can just put it up on GitHub and point people to it and be done. And so, you know, I think what we want to do with Cloud Native is we've got to figure out how to provide value to these products and these projects such that they're willing to take some degree of overhead from us. And we're, we're, we're really trying to make that overhead not burdensome, valuable and not burdensome, right? Um, but we're, you know, what we're trying to do is figure out, all right, like, how do we balance asking people, you know, 
what the uh, third-party dependencies they have are and what license are they using and, you know, sort of expecting them to meet some degree of standards while not scaring them away from the idea of, like, this being a valuable resource for them to get the word out about their project, to find new committers, to, you know, just be a little bit of a seal of approval of quality. Um, Now, when it comes to us saying, you know, projects in CNCF, therefore, are you know, this is the best of breed schedule or this is the best of breed this or that. I don't think that any of us wants that to be what we're, what we're all about, right? Mm-hmm. I do think there's going to be, you know, there's going to be options out there and I mm-hmm. think there should be. And I think, you know, Apache does have multiple things within Apache Foundation that are like kind of overlapping, whether they want to spark and storm and flink and and every other. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, Lucene and solar and like, I mean, I guess those are sort of building on top of each other, but like there are, there are a lot of things within Apache that if not direct competitors are certainly very closely related. And I think that that's okay because the point of it being in Apache is not, that like there's, there can be only one. It's that whatever <laughs> we've got in here, we feel matches the Apache, you know, standards, and we are gonna, you know, have some oversight of it. And you can feel confident mm-hmm. that the source code has gone through this degree of, you know, like oversight. And there's these resources provided to it. And so I think that's the goal with CNCF is not necessarily to to crown victors, right? The fact that Kubernetes <laughs> is, you know, an incubator. We are not crowning Kubernetes the the victor of its space by any means. I don't, you know, I think uh-huh. everybody would be horrified for me to even imply that because that's not what we're doing. We think it's a good project and it's a project that wanted to be part of a foundation. It wanted some of the resources that a foundation could provide. And so this has worked out really well for them to join CNCF. But, you know, I we would be open to lots of people in that space coming in if they have the right technical standards and they're, you know, committed to the to sort of being a part of the organization. Hmm. Okay, so I want to conclude with a quote of yours. Distributed systems are ugly, they are hard, and they are here to stay. So I think to a large extent, this is absolutely right. And most of our conversation has uh, embodied that, that quote that distributed systems are ugly, hard and here to stay. But are they at least getting easier? Uh, Yes, I think they are. And I, I, I have to say that I have really come to this conclusion in the last six months, but I think that we are getting better and better at abstracting, understanding some of the common failure modes and writing code that is tolerant of it. I think, frankly, you know, the cloud is becoming more reliable. And part of the biggest challenge of, um, part of the biggest challenge of these distributed systems is the if the underlying hardware and network are exceptionally unreliable, then they're that much harder. So as all of these different cloud providers become more reliable, the systems themselves kind of become easier to run, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I do think it's getting easier. They're never going to be as easy as standalone systems, I don't think. I could be wrong, but I don't think that, you know... At the end of the day, like even if Amazon Lambda or whatever becomes this magical thing <laughs> where you just like write a snippet of code and you push it out there and then you don't you just don't have to think about anything else at all, like, you know, things break, things go wrong, and it's harder when there's more moving parts, things that break can be that much more complicated and hard to fix. But 
In general, I think as we all become more aware and we start building products that just innately have that awareness of the complexities of distributed systems, it is getting at least a little bit easier. Hmm. Well, Camille, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you for having me. 